prepared our speaker for this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for those who have made it here. Thank you for those who are listening online. Because you're going to speak to them right now. And I ask that you give your servant, the speaker, such amazing giftedness to be able to get out of the way. So that your people come face to face with you and hear it directly from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You ready? All set to go? Yeah, lick your pens. Let's go. When, when a person who should protect you himself becomes the threat, scary. When the person who should protect you himself becomes a threat, when a husband should be protected, becomes a threat, bodyguard, brother, when a blessing that should provide for you becomes a liability and a burden, that's worrisome. When a place of healing becomes a place of hurt, it's scary. And the church should be a family. A church should be a home. A church should be a fortress. A church should be a place of healing. Anybody agree with me? Judgmentalism. Long word. Judgmentalism has hurt a lot of people. Some have left the church quietly. Some have left worship. Some have left service and ministry because of judgmentalism. Most of us can think of a time when we were judged without mercy. We know we're wrong. Oftentimes we know we're wrong. But to be judged without mercy, that hurts. Really hurts. Have you been hurt by partiality? Being judged based on your color, your ethnicity, your financial status, your availability, your helpfulness, your competence. Have you been judged, differentiated, distincted, distinguished, distinguished between others? Have you been hurt? Or have you been disillusioned by self-righteous people in the church? Not mercy-clad people, but self-righteous people in the church. So, think with me. If God's family, that's us, are the recipients of the greatest amount of mercy, I repeat, if God's family, that's us, are the recipients of the greatest amount of mercy, the greatest mercy, should we not also find there in God's family the least bit of judgment? Anybody want to say amen? Yeah? So in the church where you have received the greatest amount of mercy, should that church family should also not be a place, should it also not be a place with the least amount of Judgment. But the least amount of judgment. It's where you expect to find the least amount of judgment, the greatest amount of mercy. Imagine coming 
to a church. Imagine coming to a church where you're surrounded with joy and encouragement. Wow. Imagine coming to a church where the moment you walk in, you're surrounded with what? Joy. You're surrounded with encouragement. Encouragement for your walk with God. Encouragement for your weight loss. Encouragement for your weaknesses, for your marriage, for your career choices. In your effort to serve, in your effort to, to, to do well, in the effort to be available, encouraged in that. Imagine a church where you walk in, where you get encouraged, where it's filled with joy, where it's filled with encouragement. Imagine a church like that. Imagine a community that congratulates instead of compares. That congratulates instead of compares. That commends instead of condemns. That commends instead of condemns. Imagine a church like that. We're going to have to create that community. We're going to have to work hard towards that. It's not going to just happen on its own. People have to decide that this is what we believe. This is the, few, this is the, the nurture and the nature of our church. This is how we're going to look after people. You walk into covenant life, this is what it's going to be like. No, we will not listen to rumors about you. No, we will not listen to gossip about you. No, we will not turn against you until there is evidence. No, we will not uh, uh, hold back love from you. No, we will not judge you unless God himself has judged you. We have to decide that and then we have to try to do it and we have to change the behavior and climate of our church and constantly evaluate that so that we may. So we need to fake it till we make it. We need to fake it till we make it because in the beginning we will not be that authentic. Let's be, let's be, let's be clear about that. All the encouragement and the nice words and the, you know, that positive thing and everybody's encouraged. It will seem a little creepy in the beginning. Because we were not like that before. For a bunch of church of all introverts to suddenly become extroverts and go out loving and caring and making people feel better about themselves, it's not going to happen overnight. So we're going to have to fake it till we make it. You know, there's some things we, we start by faking it and then it becomes real. Like sleep. Yeah, well. We fake it and then sooner or later we fall asleep. Isn't that right? Fake it till you make it. But we got to make a decision. We got to like people who put on an American accent. You know? But they're so committed to it. You know, by the end of it, you're like, TGIR, okay, fine. You must have flown over the United States or something. <laughs> you know, it's true. Don't judge me. People are like that. You know? But they are so committed to it. They're all working hard. Yeah. Okay. Imagine a community that congratulates instead of compares. James has a few things to say about this. I'm going to walk you through eight conditions he talks about health of the church, and it's all found here in the first 13 verses of James chapter 2. This sermon is entitled, How to Give People a Break. How to Give People a Break. Wouldn't you like people to do that for you? Yeah? yeah give me a break. Time out. Go away. You know, we like it. We want it. Let's be that for people. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold fold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, to your church, to your 
community, to your fellowship. A poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and says, you sit here in a nice, uh, good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing great. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Let's dive in. Number one, I said there are going to be eight. Eight conditions, situations, truths about the church and what God wants us to change, think, restructure, uh, redefine. Number one, number one. He, James wants us to consider these eight. The church must be free of partiality. The church must be free of partiality. I'm going to take verse 1 and I'm going to jump to verse 8 and 9 as well because we're going to club that together. Verse 1 says this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You got that? Where does the non-partiality come from? It comes from the fact that you have placed your faith in Christ. Why would you place your faith in Christ? Look at me. Why would a person place their faith in Christ? Because they have decided they cannot do it on their own. I have failed. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And the gift of God through Jesus Christ is forgiveness, is life. So I reach out to Christ and by placing my faith in Jesus, I accept the forgiveness for which I was condemned, for the sin that condemned me. I accept the fact that I was a sinner, I was condemned, and I reach out to God for his grace. Now if you have been a beneficiary of that grace, how dare you, how dare you, Turn to someone else and say, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to let you go. No mercy for you. The church must be free of partiality. And we're talking specifically about sin, about, about mercy. When people in the church, people in the community let you down when they do wrong against you. Are you saying that God, you can do wrong against God, but no one can do wrong against you? Are you saying that you are forgivable, but nobody else who wrongs you is forgivable? God has a problem with that, and he's saying the church must be a place, a community, an example, a fellowship, where you experience this level, intensity, density of mercy. No partiality in the church. My brothers, no partiality. Because you hold faith in Christ Jesus. Then he drops to verse 8 and 9. And he says this at the end of that passage. If you really fulfill the royal law uh, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know that one. You're doing great. Okay. If you're working with that law. Remember it's a law. Love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your that's the summation of the law. Okay. So he's talking the law. The law. Keep that in mind. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin. What is your sin? Breaking the law. But the law doesn't say, thou shalt not be partial. Nowhere in the law does it say, thou shalt not, even in, in any addendum. Not even any part after number 10. Not even 10b. Nowhere does it say, thou shalt not be partial. 
But which one does he quote? He quotes, love your neighbor as yourself. If you show partiality, you are committing a sin. If you're committing a sin, you're breaking the law. And he places partiality, just partiality, distinguishing between color and race, height and width, competence and usability, congeniality. He, when we differentiate people and we prefer some over the others, we want to associate with some, not associate with others. Affiliate with some, not affiliate with others. Make a distinction within our own community of who will be and not be our friends and who we will open up our lives to and not. When we differentiate, we are doing wrong. We are not doing right. The church must be free of sin. The church must be free of partiality. Write this down. The next one. The second one is this. The way we see people will determine how we judge them. The way we see people will determine how we judge them. Brother, my sister, it's the glasses you wear. It's the perspective you have. It is your paradigm that decides. So James says, if a man wearing a gold ring, not like this one, the tamaga was a big one, you know. So if a man wearing a gold ring and he comes with his ring first, you know, like that. And beautiful, nice robes or money or some rubbish. I don't know, he just comes and, and he comes and I mean, even his socks are branded. And he walks in and behind him, one shabby, shattered fellow walks in. Looks like he just woke up and just came. Looked like he came through a car wash. Okay? And he just woke up and came to church. And there's this guy and there's this suited, booted, shiny, polished fella. And you say to one and you say to the other, as you say, he doesn't, I didn't go further than that. He says, if a man wearing a gold link, can you picture it? And can you picture the shabby guy? There's the problem. There's the problem. Those eyes that see the gold ring, the eyes that see the suit and the, the brands, and the eyes that see the shab, those eyes need to close. And the spiritual eyes of our heart need to be open to be able to see through and to the real people walking into the family of God. And what you see and how you see will determine how you judge. If that's what you see, that's how you're going to judge. If that's what you see, that's how you're going to judge. The second one we said is the way we see people will determine how we judge people. Go to the third one. What we give attention to reveals what we give value to. What we give attention to reveals what we give value to. So James says, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, oh, hello, sir, very nice to meet you, good morning. Oh, yes, everything is absolutely fine here. Yeah. Come, come, there's a front row right there for you, please come. And there's the extra bit of bhav, extra bit of lift, extra bit of honor given to, and while you're talking to that guy, that other shabby fellow quietly makes his way to the back and sits down and you don't see him because of that pillar. And he came and he went and no one ever knew 
whether he's come. And we give all the honor and glory to the guy. And the guy who dressed well also wants a little bit of that. Why do you think he dressed well? <laughs> he also wants some attention. I mean, <laughs> right? So he wants that. So he says, when you give attention, it reveals what you give value to. And he says, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the other poor man, you go stand over there or you sit down anywhere else, you're giving attention and you're giving uh, your, your, your attention to what you value. You're giving attention to what you value. Obviously, that's what you value more. James is saying, brothers, that shouldn't happen in the church. That shouldn't happen in the church. Number four, what we allow to divide us, we allow to destroy us. What we allow to divide us, we allow to destroy us. So in verse three, he says, if you pay attention to the one. Then in verse four, he says, have you not made a distinction? Have you not made a distinction? And look at these two words, among yourselves. Have you ever been compared to your brother and sister in your family? Have you ever received criticism in contrast to your sibling? Have you ever been compared? Has there ever been distinctions made? Doesn't that hurt? And God's saying the same thing applies to the family. No can do. Cannot be done. Cannot be done. This distinction. Look at the words James uses here. Remember that James is not the guy who learned Christianity from the books. He learned it walking with Jesus. Playing with Jesus. He's the half-brother of Christ. He saw Christianity on two feet every day. He knows the real thing. And he's not talking from, from textbook, you know, euphemisms and, 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 and great teachings and quotes. He's talking from watching Jesus. He says, what we allow to divide us, we allow to destroy us. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And look at this. And become say it loudly and become whoa hold your horses when did you become judges the moment you make a distinction when did you become judges the moment you made a distinction the moment your eyes showed your value on something that god doesn't look at you have made a distinction and that is not okay what we allow to divide us will eventually be what destroys us write down number five we must honor what god has honored we must honor what god has honored these are eight nuggets of situations or truths or anything that you consider basically with what god considers a healthy merciful community are you there number five we must honor what god has honored so James says in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, listen to me, hear me out. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Let's hold that. Let's think about that just for a second. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich? Opposite of poor, rich. Chosen the world, poor in the world to be rich in faith. And heirs of the kingdom. Heirs of the kingdom. So not only is the poor person rich by God's standards, he is also heir 
to a lot more than you will ever have. No, you didn't get it. The poor who walk among us, as far as God is concerned, they are the custodians and have the power of attorney to do everything that God owns. So they look poor to you, but they are not poor for God. And God has honored the poor man by making him rich in faith. Why? Because a poor person needs God more. A poor person does not have his riches to turn to. A poor person pleads the mercy of God. A poor person sees God more at work in their life. A poor person knows how God supplies and provides. A poor person is a lot more ready for God to work in their life than a rich person is. And what is a rich person? I don't know. Is it one lakh, two lakhs, five lakhs? We don't know. That's not what James is talking about. He's saying wealth takes the place of that humility and brokenness before God. And it makes you become sovereign in your own mind. Let me explain. Look at what he says. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of God? Riches can give you that audacity to hold your fist up to God. A big salary can make you a little independent from God's everyday provisions. A rich salary and a rich deposit in banks, FDs and SIPs could give you a sense of comfort and a sense of confidence about the future that you don't really have. And that makes you independent from God. And a declaration of independence from God is doom. Riches don't do great for the spiritual life. And Jesus says, harder for a rich man to get. There is something that riches have and do with people. And God is making this difference over here. He says, are not the rich the ones who are using my name as a curse word? You get on television. And the very people you laugh with, the very people you think are so beautiful, so well-dressed, the people you model your life after, say the precious name of our Lord Jesus, the, Jesus Christ, as, a, as, a, as a, an expletive, as an expletive, as a conjunction. They use the name of our Savior to fill in their sentences, to let out frustration. Is it the rich, the ones that dishonor and blaspheme the name of Christ? And that, we look and we turn a blind ear. Get that? We don't see what they're saying. We turn a blind ear to that word and we laugh at the joke before and after. Jesus Christ! Isn't it the rich that do that? And when they come to church, they get the attention. They get the announcements. They get the welcome. They get... The honor. James is saying, brothers, this must never be. This cannot be how God sees it. Number five says we must honor what God has honored. Because look at verse five. He says, has God chosen the poor in the world to be rich? And heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you, look at it. But you have dishonored the poor man. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is counter-cultural. I speak to you from this pulpit, counter-cultural. Your culture, your ingrained upbringing was to look down on the poor, look up to the rich. 
Your ingrained training is to walk into a room as an Indian and immediately sense who is where. And immediately, 60% of the room is just, you don't even bother looking in that direction. They are of no consequence to you. They are beneath you. You immediately start making conversations with the higher-ups. How do you know they're higher-up? But we automatically know and we make distinctions. And perhaps we have missed out talking to angels that God has sent our way because of our partiality. And he says, they walk in, you see the gold ring, because that's what you value. You see the nice dress, that's what you value. And you talk to that guy. And the poor shabby guy goes on the back. And the man that God honors, you have dishonored. But you have dishonored the poor man. Wow. So we must honor what God has honored. Number six, we must redefine what it means to be privileged. We must redefine what it means to be privileged. The world says to be privileged is to have. The Bible says what, it what, it, uh, what is privileged means to belong. You belong to the one and you are called by his name. You are who you are based on whose you are. And if you belong to Christ, you are Christian. You are Christian because you belong to Christ. And that name needs to be honored above wealth. That name needs to be honored above wealth. I make a small, small, small contribution to this cultural fight, this anti-cultural move, where you will find in our church no separation between pastor and people. Sometimes I have to introduce myself as the pastor of the church and they look surprised. I don't blame them. But when people walk in, we don't make a special mention of anybody. We never make a special mention of anybody. We don't say, in, in our presence here today at the service, we have Mr. and Mrs. or Mrs. and whatever. Jesus is here. Nothing else matters. After Jesus, you're nobody. So when Jesus has come into his house, there is nobody. No, there's no other rank or place. And we are here to worship Christ, not you. So we know we don't ever give attention or value or weight to what and who you are in the world, what you have accomplished in the world, how much bank balance you have in the world, because we know you can lose it as fast as you got it. So we make a small contribution. Neither is the pastor elevated, nor is anybody else elevated. In this church, there's only one head of the church. There's only one, and the rest of us are servants. And I'm the chief servant. And God has placed Jesus as the head of the church. Anyone want to say amen? amen. amen. Alright, so we must redefine what it means to be privileged. And privilege comes from the name, not from uh, from money or from wealth. Number seven, we must remember the purpose of the law by remembering the integrity of the law. We must remember the purpose of the law by remembering the integrity of the law. What does that mean? It means this. For whoever keeps the whole law, integrity of the whole law, out uh, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. What does he mean? James, what do you mean? He's saying that the law is a chain. You don't have laws. There are no laws. There's the Ten Commandments, but it's one law. Because it is one 
chain. And you have two options to get to heaven. You have two options to be holy, two options to win Christ, God's approval. One is you grab the chain of the law. You grab the chain of the law because from your birth till your death, you don't break one single law. That way your chain is complete and you grab the chain and you go to heaven with that chain. How many are going that way? For all of sin then, fallen short of the glory of God, right? So how many links does needs to break for you to break the law? Got it? And the reason for the law is because if everyone has broken at least something, all have failed. And if all have failed, all have been condemned. And if all have been condemned, all can receive mercy equally. That's the goal of the law. The law is to prove that all should receive mercy equally. Because the heart of God is to give mercy to all equally. So he sets the law up so that all fail. So the role of the law is not for you to show that you can get to heaven on your own, but to show that you need mercy and you turn to Christ and you, give, you get, to get his mercy. That's the role of the law. So if anywhere breaking the chain is breaking the whole law, I repeat, if anywhere breaking the chain is breaking the whole law, if you broke two, you broke four, you broke number seven, all of you are still lawbreakers. It doesn't matter. So when the chain breaks and you fall into the merciful arms of God, lying there in the merciful arms of God, there's no point discussing which link of the chain you broke. Are you getting this? There's no point discussing. He did that. It doesn't matter. If the chain broke, the chain broke. And he says partiality breaks the chain. Partiality breaks the chain. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have transgressed the law. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? So what he's saying is, all your holiness, all your sinlessness, all the other commands that you did not break, that you're so proud of, are pointless because you broke one command. And if you are partial, you are breaking that Commandment. So we need to remember the purpose of the law by remembering the integrity of the law. You have become a transgressor of the law. We don't want that. We don't want that. We want mercy. So therefore, number eight, mercy is God's preferred verdict every single time. Mercy is God's preferred verdict every single time. Mercy is God's preferred verdict every time single time the heart of God overflows with mercy it burns with mercy towards those he has created it is not God's desire to judge listen to me for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him, Jesus, might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, puts his trust in him, should never see perishing, condemnation, judgment, hell, but might have life eternal. It is God's idea, God's heart's desire, and God's plan to be merciful. So in his community, can you expect less?
Okay, so what do we do about this? What does it mean to have mercy? What does mercy mean? Mercy means it is not giving people what we think they deserve. Isn't that funny? Because we're judging even in that. Mercy is not giving people what we think they deserve. Okay? So if you are so gracious and merciful, and you're not giving them what you think they deserve, what should you give them? What is the antidote? What is the replacement for judgment, condemnation, etc., etc.? And the answer is, I gave you right in the beginning, it's joy and encouragement. Joy and encouragement. Take joy in people. Take joy in, in fellowship, fellowshipping with people. And number two, encourage one another. Learn to compliment. Learn to find something in a person's life by quick means of questions. One, two, three, four questions. How are you doing? Oh, wow. Oh, wow, you work. That's a lot of work. How are you doing? How are you managing with your family? Oh, that's great. Oh, you're working hard. I appreciate that. That's great. What you did this morning was great. We appreciate Every Fake it, dude. Fake it till you make it. At some point, someone's going to believe you. Yeah? And for those of you who've been whinging and whining like we've sucked a dozen lemons. Whole week, everything is wrong. Everything is bad. Everyone is against me. Especially Uber. <laughs> Whole week, for you to go suddenly turn from that to... The Lord bless you. You've been a tremendous encouragement. Yeah, well, absolutely fine. I'm so grateful to God for you. Let me pray for you. Wow, you know, I want to appreciate. For you to go from A to B, it's going to take a little bit of reprogramming. Okay? So get yourself your coffee. Get yourself into church mode. And instead of coming into church as self-righteous, come into church to lift the righteous. To see righteousness in others. To see the good in others. You'll be a bit creepy in the beginning. But we will take it. Because we can see that you're making an effort. To be an encouragement. Write down I will. And finish that sentence. God is watching. God wants to hear you. He's spoken his word to you. He's borne his heart to you. Write down I will. What are you going to do? I will be merciful. I'm going to forgive those three people that I've held. I'm going to be easy on people. I'm going to give people a break. I'm going to give my daughter a break. I'm going to give my son a break. I'm going to go easy on my husband and focus more on the things that God has put in his life for me than anything else. I'm going to go easy on my staff or on my, on my maid. What, 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 is, what needs to happen in your life for you to become a little bit more merciful? What needs to become, happen in your life for you to walk into church and not see difference? Differences in people. I will ask God to blind me to differences. I will ask God to blind me to differences. Don't be good to people you think are deserving of your good. Don't make a decision. Don't be a judge. Don't judge people that they are judging you. Because even that is judgmental. Some people are just looking at you and actually they're thinking, did I leave the gas on? I don't see how she's looking at me. You saw how she's looking at me and you judge them for being judgmental. Don't be judges, right? Only God is a judge and he has chosen to be merciful. So if you have judgmental and you're not a judge, if you are judgmental and you're not a judge, you're just? I'm going down with this. You better talk to me. 
If you're judgmental and you're actually not a judge, cancel, judge, scratch, judge, take it out, you're just... Right over here. Bow your heads with me in prayer, please. Would you like to stand? Let's stand in God's presence. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you have taught us today. We love you, Lord. We love you and we love the love you have for us. Without that, we don't know what we'd be. So, Father God, thank you for that. But it has to flow through me, O oh God. Your mercy must show up in me. I must look, if I believe that I have truly been saved, if I believe that I have received mercy from you, that mercy should overflow. It should be seen in my life. And God, people will not condemn me for being a recipient of so much mercy. They will be grateful that I allow mercy to flow through my life. I thank you that you're a God who always wants mercy. You always prefer mercy in any given situation. That's a God who always wants the relationship. We, we tend to want to end the relationship. We're ready to end it in a, in a drop of a hat because we can't stand the thought of anyone doing us wrong. Oh God, show us what it's like to be like you. Show our community what it's like to be like you. Make our community, our family, a family where the mercy and the grace of God is very, very evident and on display constantly. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Rest and abide with each and every one of us through this week and even forevermore. Amen. You're deeply loved. God bless you. Have a great week.